Good afternoon. My name is Ligon Duncan, and I serve as the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary, where I also teach systematic theology. And it's been my privilege to serve in the pastoral ministry for about 33 years now. And uh, my joy today is to talk with you about teaching our people how to listen to preaching. There's no shortage of books out there, good books, helping us as pastors know how to be better preachers. Uh, There are tremendous resources available today, more available than ever before, for us to learn and to improve our craft in teaching the Word of God clearly and effectively applying it personally and sometimes painfully to the people of God, but there are not that many resources out there on how to teach your people to listen to preaching well. And it's my contention that that is a neglected subject. The Puritans spent almost as much time teaching their people how to listen to sermons as they did teaching pastors how to preach them. Uh, It was very common in ordination commissions uh, to uh, examine a man very thoroughly, not simply in his theology, but in his preaching ability. Uh, So the Puritans cared a lot about the preaching ability of pastors, and they spent a lot of time equipping them to preach. Uh, Very interestingly, Chad Van Dixhorn, who uh, teaches church history for us at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and is the world's leading expert in the Westminster Confession of Faith, is in the middle of writing a three-volume set on the writings of the Westminster Assembly, looking at their preaching as well as their pastoral ministry. And one of the uh, amazing assertions that he makes is that the Westminster Assembly had a greater effect on preaching in England than the Reformation did. And now that's a, that's a tremendous claim. And I think it's probably borne out. If you'll remember, uh, Cranmer and the early English reformers were so discouraged at the level of preaching that they heard as they went around the various parish churches of the Church of England in the 16th century, that they started writing sermons for them and sending those sermons out to be preached. But when the Westminster Assembly came along, they spent far longer examining ministers for the ministry than they did writing the Westminster Confession and the catechisms and the directory for worship and government. They, they spent probably six years primarily examining people for the ministry. And uh, Chad argues that they managed to raise English preaching to a level that it had never obtained even in the Reformation. So the Puritans were very, very concerned about our preaching, but they were also concerned that our people would be able to appreciate our preaching and therefore that they needed to be instructed on uh, how to listen to a sermon. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to give a talk at the Philadelphia Conference 
on Reformed theology on this subject, and I, I called it How to Listen to a Bad Sermon. And uh, I, I gave it that title because I've preached so many of them. Uh, I'm, I'm an expert in a bad sermon. And uh, so everybody in the congregation needs to know how to listen to your bad sermons, as well as to your good ones. So that's what we're going to do together today. We're going to talk about how you can instruct your people in listening to preaching. And let me just go ahead and tell you right now, I am going to point you to uh, several good resources before we're done, but the one that I am going to rely upon most heavily is Richard Baxter. Some of you may own the massive folio volume of Richard Baxter's Christian directory and pastoral writings. In that Christian directory, he has a chapter on helping people in the congregation listen to sermons better. And I'm going to work through uh, most or maybe even all of the points that he makes in that chapter, and I'm also going to recommend some other resources to you. Before we begin, let's pray, and then we'll read Scripture, and then we'll get down to our task together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these brother pastors. Thank you that they love you, they love the gospel, they love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they love the Word. Thank you that they want to preach the Word and preach Christ and preach the gospel to the people of God and conform them to the image of God and bring the lost to a saving knowledge of Christ and build up the church of our Lord Jesus Christ and spread his fame and his glory and the knowledge of his salvation to the ends of the earth. As they do so, Lord, uh, I pray right now that you would help them instruct the people of God how to listen to the preaching of the Word of God better. And we pray that our time together would be well spent to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, keep them open. We'll look at several passages as we go along the way. But I want to start with John 10, 27. Uh, One of the things I get to do as chancellor is I interview every prospective faculty member at Reformed Theological Seminary, and it is a grueling three-hour theological examination. And uh, not long ago, I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Now think about that, my friends. You're going to examine Sinclair Ferguson's theology for three hours. Well, it was more like a worship service than it was like a theological examination. I mean, honestly, we, we would often, uh, the, the, the person who does those interviews with me is my provost and chief academic officer, uh, Dr. Robert Kara, who's an outstanding New Testament scholar in his own right. He and I do those exams together, and very often uh, we start those exams with what we call our fundy questions. Uh, we, we are very, very committed to biblical inerrancy. And so we have a, we have a range of questions that we want to ask real quick. And if, if, if the wrong answer is given to those questions, the interview is not going to be going forward. Think, things like who wrote the Pentateuch? How many Isaiahs were there? When was Daniel written? Was there a Q source? I mean, there are all sorts of things like that that we'll, that we'll ask. And, and the wrong answer can, can end an interview very quickly. Well, in the course of that part of the interview, we said, now all we need is yes, no answers. 
You know, don't, you don't need to elaborate. Just give us a, Well, Sinclair almost never gave us a yes-no answer. Um, it, it was always firm yeses where you needed a yes, but then with elaborations that would have provoked worship in your heart. He would tell you yes, and he would tell you why yes. And uh, it, was a, it was a glorious, glorious thing. But in the course of that interview, he mentioned to us several times that one of the driving verses in his life was John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And in particular, he applied that to the way that the people of God, as the flock of Christ, respond to Christ's voice as the scriptures are being preached to them faithfully by the preacher of God's word. And what what an appropriate application. And and how appropriate for us to start this session today. when, When we're teaching our people how to listen to preaching, what we're really doing is we're teaching them how to listen to the voice of their shepherd. That's what we're wanting to do. We want them to know how to listen to the voice of their shepherd. If you ever pause to reflect on how many times that Jesus said this phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, he, he apparently said that a lot. That, that's recorded at least eight times in the Gospels, but you get the idea that that's one of those terms that the disciples were used to him bringing up in the course of a conversation. He might be talking on some particular subject, and they began to anticipate that at some point he was going to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's interesting to me that when John sees the great vision of the revelation and receives the message of Jesus himself to the churches, what phrase reappears. It starts in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. It continues all the way to Revelation chapter 3, verse 23. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I, I wonder whether John, when he heard that, immediately said, that's the voice of my master. That, that, that's how my Savior talked to us on earth when he was teaching us the word I know the voice of my master. That's him speaking. Well, Jesus was very concerned that we have ears to hear. And when you teach your people how to listen to preaching, you're, help, you're helping giving them ears to hear. It's also interesting that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the apostle Paul will congratulate the Thessalonians with these words. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so Paul congratulates them for listening 
rightly and well to the word of God and realizing that what he was speaking to them were not his ideas. They, they weren't the words of men. He was speaking God's word to them. He was speaking the truth of the Bible to them, and they were receiving it as such, and they were listening to it. So here are five things to begin with that I think you need to teach your people about listening to a sermon. The first thing is you need to teach them what a sermon is and what a sermon is for. You need to teach your people what a sermon is and what a sermon is for. I love J.I. Packer's definition of preaching in the little book that he wrote called Truth and Power. It's in the chapter called Mouthpiece of God, and he says this, a sermon is an applicatory declaration spoken in God's name and for his praise in which some part of the written word of God delivers through the preacher some part of its message about God and godliness in relation to those whom the preacher addresses. Now, that, that, you could do a sermon series just on that definition, but here's what I don't want you to miss. Don't miss this phrase. A sermon is an applicatory declaration in which some part of the written word of God delivers through the preacher. Did you hear that? It's not that the preacher delivers the word of God. The preacher is a tool, an instrument. The word of God, which is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, it is delivering a message through you. It's delivering a message through you. So it's, it's vital for us to explain what a sermon is and what it's for. And here's what it's for. A sermon is designed to facilitate a word-mediated encounter between God and his people. The sermon is designed to facilitate a word-mediated encounter between God and his people. What do you come to church for? There, there are actually a lot of good and biblical answers to that question, but one of them has to be this. You come to church because you want to meet with God. You come to church because you want to do business with God. You come to church because you want to encounter the living God. You come to church because you want to engage with God. And David Peterson, many years ago, defined worship this way. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Well, what is the way by which he makes that encounter possible? And the answer is the word. How do you worship a spirit? The answer is however that spirit tells you to. Because otherwise you have no idea how to approach him. You have no idea what he's like. You have no idea where he is. You can only worship a spirit if the spirit tells you how to worship him. And God has done that in his word. So if people want to meet with God, if they want to engage with God, if they want to get God, if they want to commune with God, if they want to fellowship with God, 
The only way that is going to happen is by the ministry of the Spirit through the Word. And therefore, in preaching, what we're doing is we're facilitating the encounter between the people of God and God by His Word. And so it's important for them to understand that's why preaching is the culmination of the worship service. And preaching itself and the act of hearing preaching are both acts of worship. When the preacher is preaching, he's worshiping. When the people of God are listening to preaching, they're worshiping. Have you ever heard somebody say this to you at the door? Oh, we had a wonderful time of worship, and then you preach such a great practical message as if worship happened before preaching, and then suddenly there was a perfunctory stop in the worship service when you stood up here. The preaching is the culmination of our worship because by the word of God, God is facilitating a word-mediated encounter with him. Teach the people of God what a sermon is and teach them what it's for. Second, teach them why it's important. Teach them why it is so important to listen to sermons. And just tell them this, brothers and sisters, you need to listen like your life depends on it, because it does. Uh, Jesus, quoting Moses, said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need God's word as much or more than we need food. We cannot live by food alone. We need the word of the living God. What's happening in a sermon is very, very important. You need to encourage your people to listen like their life depends on it because it does. One of my fellow pastors a number of years ago came up with a category of sleep. He had been, um, he had been suffering from sleep apnea, and they had put him into a sleep clinic and he had learned about all kinds of different sleep, including the kinds of sleep that he was not getting. And he was telling us about this at minister's meeting one week, and um, he said, but you know, there's another kind of sleep too. And we said, well, what, what's that kind of sleep? And he, he said, it's called church sleep. <laughs> and we said, well, what's church sleep? And he says, well, that's when you think you're awake, but you're not. And sadly, that is so true. And look, pastors, we even realize there are times in services that we're leading when we think we're awake, but we're not. And so what we want to do is make sure that our people don't fall into a pattern of church sleep, especially under the preaching of the Word. Have you ever been on an airplane, and uh, right as the, as the door closes, the announcement begins. Please make certain that your seat belts are securely fastened, your seat backs are in their full upright position, your tray tables are stowed, carry-on luggage should be placed beneath the seat in front of you or in the overhead bins, and, and it, it's sort of like Charlie Brown's teacher in the comic shrimp, wah, 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 and you're not listening at all. But, 
but have you ever been on a plane where you hit severe turbulence and then the, the, the plane drops and then suddenly the, the, the air mass deploy and then suddenly everybody on that plane is trying to remember what did the flight attendant tell me to do? <laughs> what, what seemed utterly boring 30 minutes before now seems like a matter of life and death. Make sure that your people of God are listening to the word, not like we usually listen when the door is just closed on the plane, but as if they were in a moment of crisis because they are. They're in a war. They're in a war with the world and the flesh and the devil. And Satan wants to sift them like wheat. And their only hope is the word of God. They need to listen like life depends on it. Third, remind them to remember who is speaking to them. If the minister is preaching the Bible, it's God talking to them. By the way, that's why it's so important for the minister to preach the Bible to them and not something else because they don't need to hear my word. They need to hear God's word. And if the minister is preaching the Bible, it's God talking to them. The messenger is unimportant at a certain level. The message is all important. The attention is not to be drawn to the messenger. The attention is to be drawn to the message. And the messenger's job is to deliver the message. I love how Mark Dever says it. Our job as ministers really is like that of a postman. All we do is deliver the word of God. We don't write it. We don't write the letters that we deliver. We don't open and read the letters that we deliver. We deliver the word of God to the people of God. We're not the originating author. We are the deliverer. That's why I love Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf's description of our task as, as ministers. You remember what he says? Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's our aspiration. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten because the message is what is important. Why? Because it's God talking. Fourth, remember what the Bible is all about and remember what life is all about. Paul says that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. For what? For teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. For what? That the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The Bible is completely sufficient as well as fully inspired. And because of this, it is profitable to teach us how to live. And therefore, it is not merely relevant. It's absolutely necessary. It's very interesting. The Westminster Confession of Faith begins its exposition of the Christian faith with a chapter on the doctrine of Scripture. And the first thing that it says in chapter 1, section 1, is not that the Bible is inerrant, though it will say that, not that the Bible is inspired, though it will say that, but that the Bible is necessary. Why does it start there? Because Roman Catholics taught that it was not. And they wanted to make it very clear, no, 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 absolutely incorrect. If all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work, then Scripture is absolutely necessary for the Christian life. The church 
the traditions of men cannot substitute for it if 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is true. If that's true, then Scripture is necessary. And so we want to make sure that the people of God remember what the Bible is all about and what life is all about. Glorifying and enjoying God is what we are here for. And thus, we need the Bible so that we know who we are and what we're here for so that God reveals himself and shows us our purpose in life to pursue his glory and our joy in him. Fifth, we need to remind the people of God as they come to the preaching of the word of God who they are. They are fallen humans made in the image of God and children of God saved by grace through faith in Christ. And therefore, they deeply need to hear the gospel again and again. They deeply need to know the remedy for sin in Jesus Christ. They need to know his grace. They need to hear his assurance. They need to know who they are. And that teaches them why the sermon is so important, because it's exactly what they need. Now, in 1673, Richard Baxter took up this question of how do we prepare people to listen to the word of God? And in his Christian directory, he said, you need four things if you're going to listen to sermons profitably. You need to first, hear with understanding. Second, remember what you hear. Third, be rightly affected by it, meaning that's affected, A-F-F-E-C-T-E-D, affected by it, that is influenced or changed, or stirred, or impressed upon with it or by it. We need to be rightly affected by it. And then fourth, we need to sincerely practice it. Let me tell you those again, because I'm going to walk through those over the next few minutes together. We need to hear with understanding. So we need to teach our people how to understand the word. Second, we need to remember what we hear. So it's not enough to understand it. We need to be able to remember it. Third, we need to be rightly affected by it. The word is meant to change us, to convict us, to challenge us, to stir us, to impress us, to influence us. And we need to be rightly affected by that word. And fourth, we need to sincerely practice it. We are not merely to be hearers. This is another saying that Jesus would say to his disciples, not hearers only, but doers of the word. And uh, Paul talks about that, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he talks about proving what the will of God is, right? How, How do you prove what the will of God is? Well, do you know the old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating? Well, here's the point. God's saying, you want to know my will? what my will is? You can't know my will until you're doing it. And when you do it, then you know that it is good and right and true. 
put my word to the test, put my word into practice, and it will prove what the will of God is. It'll prove that it's good. It'll prove that it's wise. It'll prove that it's a blessing. Well, truth needs to be put into practice. Now, these are the directions that Richard Baxter gave uh, to his congregation for each of those four things. So let's walk through them together real quickly. First, he took up the issue of understanding what you hear, and he gave 12 directions for understanding, for teaching the people of God how to understand what they hear. Directions for the understanding of the word which you hear. First, he said, read and meditate on your Bible in private so that you understand it better in public worship. That's why the people of God need to study their Bibles uh, in between the sermons that they hear. And here's, the, here's something I'm seeing more and more, even in Bible-believing churches, there are Christians that do not read the Bible or hear it read at all except when it's read in worship on Sunday. That is far more common, I think, in our circles than it has ever been. We've been the Bible guys for 100 years, right? Our people, we, we, we prided ourselves on our people knowing their Bibles better than anybody else. But now, their Bibles, like they've got more Bibles than they've ever had before. They've got Bibles on their phones, Bibles on their iPads, 27 different translations on their shelf at home, and they are closed. So the people of God need to read and meditate on the Bible in private so that they understand it better in public worship. Second, he says, sit under the best preaching, meaning the most faithful, clear, distinct teaching of the word that you can find. Third, come to hear with a careful heart. And let me just read exactly what he says uh, and means by that statement. Come not to hear with a careless heart, as if you were to hear a matter that little concerned you, but come with a sense of the unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequence of the holy word which you are to hear. And when you understand how much you are concerned in it and truly love it as the word of life, it will greatly help your understanding in every particular truth. That which a man loveth not and perceiveth no necessity of it he will hear with so little regard and heed that it will make no considerable impression on his mind. But a good understanding of the excellency and necessity, exciting love and serious attention would make the particulars easy to be understood. When else you will be like a stopped up or narrow-mouthed bottle that keepeth out that which you desire to put in. I know that understanding must go before affections, yet the understanding of the concernments and worth of your own souls must first procure such a serious care of your salvation 
and a general regard to the Word of God as is needful to your further understanding of the particular instructions which you shall after hear. In other words, if you don't come with the general attitude that what the preacher is going to say today is serious, it's important, I need this, you are likely to miss the particular instructions that you're going to get in his preaching from the word that way. So you need to come with a general expectation that this is important, that this is solemn, that this is serious. Come to hear with a careful heart. Fourth, and and again, this could be an entire sermon series in our day and time, he says, guard against empty thoughts and inattention. Guard against empty thoughts and inattention. This is how he puts it. Suffer not vain thoughts or drowsy negligence to hinder your attention. And uh, the people of God come with more distractions in that regard than ever before today. And, And especially with regard to these things which are almost constantly in their pockets or in their hands and buzzing and beeping and interrupting the worship service and they're checking it 14 times during the service or they drift off in the middle of a part of the service that they find boring and they start checking their Twitter feed or whatever else. You're you're going to have to actually work to help people not to actively distract themselves in the context of worship. And by the way, one of the best ways to do that is to completely uh, de-electronicize your services. The fewer electronics, the better uh, of, of every sort and stripe because we are inundated uh, by the digital and the electronic in uh, our age. The simpler, the cleaner, the more straightforward, the more focused, the better. Um, Five, teach your people to pay most attention to the main point and thrust of the sermon. Um, You know, have you ever had somebody meet you at the door and they tell you, I love that sermon, and then they tell you what it's about and it's not what your sermon was about? (laughs) And you think, okay, maybe there's a career in metallurgy waiting for me somewhere, you know. Um, Teach your people how to listen for the main point, the principal thrust of the message. Sixth, note the things that are of most weight and relation to your own soul. You know, there, there's another thing. Have you ever met somebody at the door and, and you got this comment? Boy, pastor, they really did need to hear that sermon today. They? Really? They needed to hear that? What about you? You didn't need to hear that sermon today? Pay most attention to the things that are of most weight and concern to your own soul. Don't don't wonder what the preacher's preaching to him or her or them. Think about the things that are of most weight and concern to your own soul. Seventh, Baxter says, learn your catechism at home. 
I don't know whether your churches use catechisms. I grew up on the shorter catechism. You had to memorize 107 questions and answers in the shorter catechism. But the point was simply this. Catechism gives you a quick overview of Bible doctrine. It functions like systematic theology for preachers. Doctrine helps you listen to sermons because you're able to put things together. It puts the Bible together for you. So it puts specific passages and sections that the pastor is preaching in proper context. For centuries, the way that Christian pastors have provided catechism for the people of God in preaching, by the way, is by preaching through the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer, which which gives you a doctrinal and practical and prayer guide to the Christian life. Learn your catechism at home. Eighth, he says, meditate on the sermon when you come home. There's nothing more helpful to your understanding than to meditate on the sermon when you come home. Ninth, seek answers for questions or doubts that occur to you and seek those answers and questions uh, or seek those uh, answers for questions or doubts from your pastors and elders. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how I've benefited from that over the years. Um, God's sovereignty and human responsibility baffled me for years. And I still don't understand most of it. But I went with my troubles and my problems to my pastor. And I said, pastor, help me understand. And then to my professors and said, professors, help me understand. And they helped me understand the Bible better so that I wasn't trapped. I didn't wake up one day and say, okay, I understand it all now. I, wake up, I woke up one day and I said, okay, the Bible clearly teaches this. I do not understand it all. I'm going with the Bible and not with my own understanding. But it was my pastors and professors that helped me get there because I was going to them with my problems and my questions based on what they were teaching me from the word, and you want to encourage your people. To, there's nothing. There's nothing more gratifying, is it? And for your people to pay such close attention to your preaching, that they have really good questions to ask you about the word of God. That are that they need some professional biblical help uh, on. It's a it's a gratifying conversation to have. I'll take that over glib superficial compliments any day good preaching, pastor, good sermon, pastor. I'd much rather, pastor, I don't understand how this verse goes with this verse. Can you help me? That's a wonderful conversation to be able to have. Tenth, read the best, most solid Christian books on doctrine. And again, Baxter is saying, if your people aren't reading solid Christian books, it's going to hamper their ability to benefit the most from preaching. And then finally, uh, or not finally, 11th, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and illumination. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and illumination. I think it's very important for us to, we, we always pray uh, before we read the scripture in our services. It's something that Calvin did in, in Geneva. Why? He wanted to emphasize that the Bible, which was written by the Holy Spirit, 
must also be understood with the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to have our eyes opened by the Spirit in order to understand his word. One of the prayers of the psalmist was, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. That's a good biblical prayer. And, uh, and so teach your people to pray that the Spirit would give them wisdom and illumination so that they understand the Word of God. And now, finally, 12th, he says, practice what you know. Practice what you know. One of the best ways to understand the Word of God is to put it into practice because there is an experiential, practical dimension to knowing and understanding that can only occur when we do what God tells us to do in his word. So those are Baxter's directions for understanding the word uh, when it's preached. Second, he then takes up the question of remembering what has been preached. How do we help our people remember what has been preached? And he has 10 suggestions. Uh, they are first. It will, and, and this, you're going to laugh, but this is so, so practical. It will help your memory if you understand the subject that is being spoken about. It will help your memory if you understand the subject that is being spoken. You know, if, if, if you put me right now in a computer code class, uh, or in a calculus class, and then you ask me to tell you what I heard in that class when it's over with, it's not going to be very impressive because I just don't understand those things very well. But you put me in a class on the Gospel of John, or you put me in a class on Isaiah, I know enough about the subject that I'm going to be able to benefit from the teaching on that subject. So again, this reminds us that one of the reasons why people so quickly write off preaching today is they don't know enough to benefit from it. They don't know enough to, to appreciate the message. So you've got to do what you can to help them be prepared to receive the preaching. You've ever had somebody say, you know, pastor, your preaching has gotten a lot better over the last five years. You know, and the little bubble above your head might be, well, you know, you might know your Bible a little better than you did five years ago. You know, it may not be that my preaching's that much better. It just may be that you're able to take in more of what I'm trying to give you because you have to know something to know something. I remember my father used to say, I can't teach you anything if you don't know nothing. Okay, right? Well, it's the same thing in preaching. If you don't know nothing, I can't, I can't preach to you on much. And so it'll help your memory if you understand the subject that's being spoken about. Second, awakened affections are a powerful help to our memories. Um, there are sermons that I heard 25 and 30 years ago that I could repeat verbatim right now. Why? Because God nailed me right between the eyes. He hit me straight in the heart through those pastors, and I could repeat those sermons verbatim right now. 
Now, I'm a preacher. We, 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 we're looking at sermons all the time. We're listening to sermons all the time. It's easier for us to do that than for our people. But you know what? Our people can remember certain sermons that you've preached long, long after maybe even you've forgotten the outline of them. Why? Because that sermon affected them greatly. Now, if that's the case, don't we want to do everything we can to be in a position to be awakened and affected by the preaching when we go under it? And one of those things, of course, is really concentrating. You know, your, you know, your mind can't wander and have that kind of mnemonic grip on truth. It's, I, you, there are those times when you're on the edge of your seat and you're just locked in and you're listening to every word. Those are the times that your affections are awakened, and those are the times that you remember. Third, method, by which he means a regular, obvious structure or plan for your message, is a great help to memory. Um, Outlines. A, A clear and predictable pattern in your preaching where you're going to have three main points or four main points or five main points or two main points, and and you announce those ahead of time so that they can follow with you through the argument of the message, announcing sort of your thesis statement or your proposition for the whole sermon. Method helps people remember your sermons. The more structure you give them, the more they'll be able to remember what you're preaching from God's word. Fourth, he says, numbers are a great help to memory. Now, I'm giving you far too many numbers today. Don't do what I'm doing today. I I remember my my colleague Derek Thomas telling me he had been reading the sermons of James Durham, and I can't remember if it was Durham's sermons on Job or uh, Durham's sermons on Isaiah 53. But he said, Lig, you will not believe what I read in Durham's sermon this morning. What did you read, Derek? He said this phrase, I've never seen it in a sermon before, and 69thly. Okay? Okay? Don't, don't, don't do that, okay? I, I, I got to the point where I would often stand up and I would say, now I have 24 points tonight, but because I love you, I'm only going to give you four. And if you want to get the others, you can read them on the website when I post the notes. Um, So, you know, numbers are a help to a certain point. Uh, If the numbers get too high, uh, they have diminishing returns. But numbering things can, again, help people's memories. Fifth, names and key words are a great help to memory. And look, this is why some of you work hard on alliterating things. And uh, this is why some of you work hard on catchy phrases to drive home a particular biblical point. I, I can remember as a junior in college hearing a sermon series on Malachi, of all things, entitled by Robert Rayburn, entitled seven signs of serious spiritual sickness. Now, he had me right at the title. I mean, he had me at the title. And it was a seven-part sermon series, I might add. So it was a sermon on every one of the seven signs of serious spiritual sickness. And I was riveted. I ended up going to that seminary because of that sermon series. 
Um, and uh, but again, what what it was there were there were names and terms and words, key words that were used that are a great help to memory. Uh, Baxter gives this example. Uh, he said, "As if I were to direct you to the chiefest helps." to your salvation. So I say he's going to preach a, a sermon on what are the chief helps to your salvation. And he he gives seven of them. One, powerful preaching. Two, prayer. Three, providence. Four, piety. Five, painfulness. Six, patience. And seven, perseverance. And so he, he uh, gives you uh, words uh, that that sort of uh, illustrate the main point of each of his headings so that you can remember the content of what he says. So names and keywords are a great help to the memory. Sixth, repeating to yourself the points of outline. So you, you tell your people, as I'm preaching, I'm going to tell you I've got three points today. We're going to look at this, 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 and then as you move to the second point, tell your people, go ahead and repeat the first point in your mind. Pastor's moving to the second point. Let me repeat the heading of the first point again before he goes to the second point. And then let me repeat the heading of the second point before he goes to the third point. Just talk, talk in your own mind to yourself. Repeat those points. It's a great help to memory. Seventh, this is so good. He says, don't try and remember everything. Don't try and remember everything. He said, if you try and remember everything, it'll, it'll all fall apart. Don't try and remember everything. Now, this, by the way, is where we have a great advantage over Baxter because most of you are able to record your messages. And your people can go to your church website or they can go to your church library and they can get the sermons that you have preached and they can listen to them again. Uh, and you may so interest them in an area where they're not, they're not able to take notes fast enough. They're not able to get it all. They can go back and listen to it. Encourage them to do that. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, eighth, taking notes is a great help to memory. So encourage your people. If that helps you, now I, I'm personally not much of a note taker. Normally, I want to be on the edge of my seat listening to every word come to me. And if I take notes, it's generally the second time through. I'll, I'll go back and listen to a sermon again and take notes on it the second time through. But some people are really helped by taking notes. If so, take notes. It's a great aid to memory. Ninth, review your notes. Okay, so you've taken notes, review them. And I have, I have people that will keep, um, they'll keep sort of moleskin volumes of their notes through sermon series. Or even more terrifyingly, I'll see them taking notes in their Bibles, and I'll think to myself, I better be saying what's right here. <laughs> that I, I can remember as a youth director looking out one Wednesday night as we were working through the book of Job and seeing a student writing in her margin of the Bible, and I thought, I better be, whatever I'm saying, it better be right. Um, review your notes. It's a great help to memory. Tenth, if you don't get the points verbatim, try to get the main drift. So teach your people, <clears throat> even if you don't get it exactly the way I said it, try and get the main drift. And there's another thing. Don't you love it when somebody meets you at the door and says, Pastor, would you just tell me point three one more time? And they've, they've got their bulletin or their moleskin open and they're wanting to get it down exactly like you said it. Doesn't that encourage you? 
Well, encourage your people. If you, don't, you don't have to get it exactly like I said it, but if you want to know it exactly how I said it, don't you hesitate to come up and ask me. I'll tell you again exactly how I said it. So those are his directions for remembering what you hear. So you need to understand what you hear. You need to remember what you hear. Third, he then gives directions for how our affections can be right for holy resolutions and affections in hearing the word. And once again, he gives 10 of these directions in teaching his people. Now listen to what he says. This is an opening statement that he makes in this section, super important. The understanding and memory are but the passage to the heart. The understanding and the memory, that, that's just the path I'm trying to take to somebody's heart. That's where I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get to their heart. And by the way, by heart in the Bible, we don't mean feelings, right? By heart, we mean the seat of the want. It, it, is, it is the place from which we want and desire what we want the most. The, the heart is the place from which we treasure and desire what we care about the most. So that's where I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get at people's heart, their affections, the things that they are, that they, that they are, they've put their hope in, their desire, they've set their desires on, where they've put their treasure. I'm trying to get there. So the understanding and the memory are but the passage to the heart. And the practice is but the expression of the heart. That's why just telling people, do this, don't do that, doesn't get at the heart. Because if it's done right, that's just the expression of the heart. So where I want to get is the heart. And he says this, therefore, how to work on the heart is the principal business of the preacher. Ooh. That is so good. You've got to become heart surgeons. And now he's going to say, okay, people of God, how do you listen to my sermons so that you can help me do the work on your heart like I want to do? And here are his 10 directions. One, live under the most convincing, lively, serious preaching that you possibly can. And by the way, what you want to do, because you never know how long you're going to have your church members. You, you may have them three months, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, but you've got to preach to them like they're not always going to be under your preaching. And you so want to spoil them rotten with faithful Bible preaching that they will never be able to go back to the pablum that pervades the world out there. You want to so spoil them rotten with good Bible preaching that they can't take the superficial monologues that pass for preaching in other places, right? So you want to train them. You want convicting preaching. You want preaching that goes for the heart. You want serious preaching. That's the kind of preaching you want. That's the first thing that he says. Second, remember that your ministers are messengers of Christ and they come to you on his business and in his name. Uh, Jesus tells us in Ephesians 4 that uh, he poured out gifts on his church. 
when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Among them, apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers. So you are a gift from Christ to the people of God, and you're there in his name and on his business. Third, remember that it is God talking to you in the word about the saving of your soul. It is God talking to you in the word about the saving of your soul. Fourth, remember that you have little time to hear and you may never hear the word again. You have little time. You know, even if we get to hear the word for 60, 70, 80, 90 years, that's not very long in the scope of eternity, is it? You know, I I was at an evening service at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, my wife's home church, where Sinclair Ferguson was the pastor until recently. And Sinclair opened up the evening service by saying this, friends, the people who are gathered here tonight under this particular passage and this particular word and this particular sermon need to realize this, what is going to happen tonight is never, ever going to happen again. The same people won't be here the same preacher won't be here, the same passage won't be preached. When this is done, it is gone forever. Listen, listen with that kind of realization. It may be your life. He said, some people will walk out of here and they'll never hear a sermon again. Remember that we have little time to hear and we may never hear again. Fifth, remember that we will give an account for what we've heard. You remember what Jesus said to his contemporaries? The people of Sodom and Tyre will stand up and condemn you because you heard the Christ, the Messiah, preach the word of God and you didn't listen to him. They would have repented if they had heard my preaching. You just perk on that for a little while. That'll blow your sovereignty categories for a little bit. Uh, but, But here's the point. When we're under faithful preaching, there's an accountability that goes with that. Sixth, I love this one. He says, make it your own work to apply the word that you're hearing. Don't put it all on the preacher. You know, preacher, I wish you sure wish you'd apply the word of God more. You applying it to yourself? Are you, are you leaving all of that to me? Or are you working yourself to apply the word of God? Seventh, work over the message in your heart. Review it, meditate on it, preach it to yourself again. So chew on that message. Review it, meditate it, preach it to yourself. Eighth, pray the message back to God. Pray the message back to God. Ninth, go to Christ for faith and ask for the quickening of the Holy Spirit. Again, we have not because we ask not. Lord, give me faith to believe what the pastor preached. Give me faith to be affected by what the pastor has preached. Quicken me by your Holy Spirit. And then I love this one, tenth, put the word to work in service to others. Put the word to work in service to others. That's one where, you know, a lot of times we're sermon tasters and we're drinking up good preaching, 
but we're not putting it to work in service to others. And that's when it can get really sweet. Now, fourth and finally, Baxter gives directions on how to bring what we hear into practice. And he gives 10 of those. So you will have only had 42 points from Baxter when we're done. Uh, But by the way, it just reminds you how much there is to talk with your people about this. I mean, that's why you could do a Sunday school series or you could do a sermon series. There's a lot to talk with your people about this very quickly so that I can get you some resources and then five quick practical suggestions. One, directions for bringing what we hear into practice. One, be acquainted with the failings of your hearts and lives and come on purpose to get directions and help against those particular failings. So you've, you, know, you, you, you are racked with anxiety. Come, come, come to church saying, Lord, I'm racked with anxiety. I know that you tell me in your word, do not worry. But I'm worrying all the time. I'm overwhelmed by worrying. Use the preaching of my pastor to speak to my sin, to speak to my need, to address my concern. Come with the failings of your hearts and lives. Come on purpose to get directions and help against those particular failings. Two, you have to understand the word and remember the word and be influenced by the word if you're going to put it into practice. If if you're going to put the word in practice, you've got to understand it first, you've got to remember it, and then you've got to be touched by it before it'll ever be put into practice. So putting the word into practice actually requires the other three points, right? You can't put into practice a word that you don't understand. You can't put into practice a word that you don't remember, and you can't put into practice a word that has not affected you. So all three of those things actually feed into your practice. Third, when you understand the message, take special note of the applications and the motivations that the preacher mentions. And and preacher, by the way, you think carefully about those things. Don't just preach on a topic. Ask yourself hard questions about the biblical application of that topic, and then not just the biblical application, but the motivation for the people of God either believing or doing what the Word calls them to believe or do. You know, Jesus not only calls people to faith, he gives them reasons and motivations to believe. Do you in your preaching? Do you set forth reasons and motivations to believe? Well, he's saying, don't just listen to the general message Take note of how the pastor is applying and motivating you in the message and plead them with your own heart. Fourth, when you come home, let your conscience repeat the sermon to you. You want to put the truth into practice? Let your conscience repeat the sermon to you. Fifth, listen to the most practical preachers that you can get. Theology is practical. And uh, he's, he's, again, uh, he's reminding us what preachers ought to be doing in our preaching so that our people can benefit in practice from what we preach. Sixth, 
take heed especially of two sorts of false teachers. So he's warning the people of God, watch out for two kinds of false teachers, antinomians and legalists. He has a very interesting name for them, by the way. Uh, he He doesn't just call them antinomians and legalists. He calls them antinomian libertines and autonomian Pharisees. Pharisees are making up their own law and applying it to you. Antinomians are denying God's law and saying that it's unnecessary. And he says to the people of God, if you want to practice the truth, be on guard for both antinomians and legalists. Both of them will lead lead you astray in different ways. They won't help you practice the truth. Seventh, associate yourselves with the most holy, serious, and practical Christians. What is it that the apostle says? Bad company corrupts good morals. So if you want to put the truth into practice, you need to be with Christians that are serious about putting the truth into practice. Eight, keep account, keep an account of your practice. Just ask yourself, how am I doing in this area? I'm struggling with gossip. I'm struggling with envy. I'm struggling with worry. How am I doing? Am I attacking that sin? Am I killing that sin? Am I letting the word of God dwell richly in me to to vivify uh, and to mortify as I ought to? Ninth, set your hearts on contemplating the wonderful love of God in Christ. If you want to put the truth into practice, set your heart on contemplating the wonderful love of Christ. That's exactly right. That's exactly the move that Paul makes in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. Why does he say that he wants us to to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians 3, 19? So that we will be filled up to all the fullness of God. In other words, so that we will be mature. He wants us to know the love of Christ so that we will be mature. So if you want to put the truth into practice, contemplate the wonderful love of God in Christ. And 10th, this is so interesting, do not receive ungrounded or unnecessary prejudices against the person of the preacher. When when people in the congregation make ungrounded and unnecessary criticisms of the pastor, what does it do? It can put a check in your heart to listening to the word of God from his lips and putting it into practice. So don't hear it. Nope, nope, I don't want to hear that. You don't like the way he dresses? You, you, don't, you don't like the way his wife dresses the kids? You don't, you, no, I don't want to hear it. I, I, my business is to receive the truth of God's word from his mouth. I don't need any unnecessary and ungrounded prejudices to distract me. Now, three great resources for you if you want to do some further work on this. Baxter, I've already told you, Christian Directory. Jay Adams wrote a book called Be Careful How You Listen, How to Get the Most Out of a Sermon. Solid Ground Christian Books put that into print about uh, eight or nine years ago. Ken Ramey. Uh, has written a book called Expository Listening. I think there are 40 copies in the tent. 
Expository Listening, a Practical Handbook for Hearing and Doing God's Word. It's published by Cress. And then Joel Beakey of Reformation Heritage Books has written a book called The Family at Church, Listening to Sermons and Attending Prayer Meetings, which has an amazing bibliography uh, of the Puritans at the end on their works where they help you on that. So those are three great resources. Now, quickly and finally, five practical suggestions. One, preach a sermon series on how to listen to preaching. Preach a sermon series on how to listen to preaching. Two, make brief pre-service reminders and encouragements on that topic. Three, emphasize the importance of reading and preaching the word in your public services. So sometimes before we read the Bible, uh, I will say this in a public service. You are about to hear something that six billion people on this planet have never heard. The word of God in your own language read as a means of grace in a public Christian service of worship. Six billion people alive today have never heard that once. What are you doing? You're just impressing upon them how important it is and what a privilege it is for them to be able to hear the Word of God read and preached. So emphasize the importance of the reading and preaching of the Word in your public services. Fourth, put helpful quotes about listening to sermons in your bulletins if you use it or on screens before the services if you use those. And fifth, publish your bulletin online if you have one, and if you don't, publish your sermon text online ahead of time and encourage your congregation to read the sermon passage ahead of Sunday. Thank you so much for your patience and listening. May God bless you as you teach the people of God to listen to the preaching of the Word of God.